and that's perhaps why, because of their special skills, in most armies, the paras are regarded as a special and elite unit. Soldiers dropping from the skies were a feature of World War II and Korea. Their chief weapon was surprise. Their fighting tradition was formidable, as it had to be, given the odds they faced. And it was the Germans who were the first to commit paratroopers to action en masse. The parachute soldiers in any army in the world are always a certain elite. They stick together, they kept good discipline, and they had everywhere a wonderful spirit. Our soldiers, our non-commissioned officers, we commanders, all together, we are one family. We meet, we were helping each other. Our good comrades, our good soldiers, are trained to obey orders. Everybody wants to serve his country. There was a lot of patriotism. All parachutists begin their training on the ground. They are hardened in careful steps, the shock of the jump, the slipstream, and the landing. They must also prepare for their type of operations with great care. By 1941, the German parachutists had taken part in two great campaigns, in the West and in the Balkans. And then in May of that year, they planned for their riskiest venture, the assault on Crete. Codenamed Mercury, the operation was to be the first attempt of the airborne age to seize a large objective with parachute troops. As we, we saw great from the air, I was from time to time with these uh, pilots in the cockpit and had a good view. We had quite clear weather. Naturally, everybody wants to show up that he is a proud soldier, but in fact, I wouldn't be honest if I was not admitting that everybody in fact was afraid. Uh, this was a situation where we started singing even. We admitted that all of us, we were afraid. And the singing in the plane was more or less uh, show business. Uh, you give each other carriage. We dropped down like, how shall I say, like, like a bag of potatoes. Huh? We always had, had to stand, hold on the door, jump at first, spread your arms, keep yourselves in the balance, jump out towards the wing. You're frightened. Everybody is frightened, you know? But you, you hope for that bang. Once you're out, you hear that bang on top of you. And you, that's a relief, you know, you shoot the soul. But a safe landing is not enough to make a parachute jump a success. The individual paratrooper has to begin fighting hard as soon as he hits the ground. The individual is more important than the unit after landing in the first, say, 20 minutes. You must have good soldiers, weak boys and so, and they, they don't have an aim and there are no patriots, they, you can forget them. And there was the most heavy fighting. The biggest fighting was around the airport in Malemis. The airport was the key. The Germans finally took it and opened the way for their transport aircraft to bring in reinforcements. Had the British held the airport, they could have isolated the German parachutists and destroyed them at leisure. As it was, supported by stronger forces, the Germans went onto the offensive 
and victory. We occupied at least this hill of Malemus, and then uh, more or less the whole island was in our hand. But we had heavy, heavy losses. And I think the whole German general staff was astonished about these losses. I think the whole airborne philosophy was changed after this experience of Crete. So heavy were the German losses that Hitler never again risked using his elite airborne divisions in mass drops. Welcome back to Demon Forces 5, Part 2. Now we're going to switch things up a little bit today. As promised, we are going to start talking about Charles Taylor's arms dealers. This is something that's going to have to be explored in multiple episodes. So today, we're just going to focus on the first one. Now when I stumbled across this individual's name, probably around 2016, I had already been familiar, or I thought I was deeply familiar, with the general outlines of Charles Taylor's story. But then I stumbled across a somewhat obscure book called The Shadow World, Inside the Global Arms Trade, by South African author and former MP Andrew Feinstein. And Feinstein, to my knowledge, is the only author to actually make the explicit connection between Charles Taylor and the man we are about to start talking about, a shadowy German, the man you just heard in the intro, recounting somewhat wistfully his experiences as an elite Nazi paratrooper in World War II, named Gerhard Mertens. Now, if you're a longtime listener of Subliminal Jihad, you may remember that name being brought up once before in Contra 6 when we were talking about BCCI. I speculated, though I still have not been able to really pin it down, that the quote-unquote high German arms dealer Heinrich, that's not his real name, who is, I think in the book The Outlaw Bank, bears an incredible similarity to Gerhard Mertens on a variety of levels. But when I discovered this man's involvement in the Liberian Civil War, it turned everything that I thought I knew or understood about it on its head, and it opened up a whole new web of connections that, when put together, start to paint a very different picture about what really went on in the Liberian Civil War and who really were the driving, catalyzing forces behind it. There's a lot more I have to say about it. But I think the best place to start would be with Feinstein's book, Shadow World. And I just want to note before I start reading from this that the overall thrust of Shadow World is an examination of the global arms trade. And I would say that a huge focus of Feinstein's throughout is the Saudi royal family and the Al Yamama deal with uh, British BAE, which, um, as he quite ably lays out, was one of the biggest and most corrupt arms deals of all time. But he splits his time talking about these big corrupt arms deals between nations and big corporations and defense contractors, and also talking about the even dirtier and bloodier and more corrupt 
world of small arms dealing, particularly in what many people regard as its golden decade, the 1990s. So I just want to clarify that this book is not about Liberia. However, he mentions a number of times and actually provides some very valuable original research in using Liberia as an example or a particularly brutal case study in the fruits of the shadow world. So I'm going to read you a little bit from chapter two, which is, I think, quite appropriately titled The Nazi Connection. And don't be surprised if you see quite a few familiar names and faces pop up that we've discussed before on this show. So Feinstein writes, Where large British and American firms became the pinnacle of the formal trade in arms, a small German company run by an affable, rotund former Nazi represented the murkiest depths of the shadow world, the borderland between the legal and illegal trade in weapons. Marex had its genesis in early June 1945, just over a month after Adolf Hitler had committed suicide, as two men sat on a veranda in Wiesbaden in West Germany. One, General Reinhard Galen, was a German prisoner of war who had turned himself over to the Allies a month previously. The other was John R. Boker, Jr., an American officer in military intelligence whose task it was to interrogate senior German operatives captured by the Allies. Together they discussed an arrangement that would have deep ramifications for both Germany and the world's future. To secure the survivors of Nazi Germany's wartime intelligence, in service of the West. For Galen and the wide network of operatives he directed, the Second World War had been but a prefiguring of the great global conflict to come. In May 1942, Galen was appointed as the chief of the Fremdehir Ost, Foreign Armies East, the intelligence branch of the German general staff on the Eastern Front. His experience there was eye-opening. A committed Nazi, Galen was nevertheless forced to admit that Germany's chances of winning the war were slim. Directly appraised of the methods and might of the Soviets, Galen confided in his Fremdehir Ost colleague, Lieutenant Colonel Gerhard Vessel, that the end of the conflict would bring into sharp relief what the exigencies of war had hidden, that the next decades would witness a severing of the world in two, the West on one side and the East on the other. More importantly, the East-West conflict would spare none, demanding allegiances without option. Quote, it would be essential to ally with one side or other. No neutral position was possible, Vessel recalled in a later statement given to U.S. authorities. Caught between two global forces, Galen and Vessel chose the West. Coming to this realization, Galen and his organization made plans. Large dossiers of German intelligence on Soviet activities, which included surveillance photos of Russian industrial complexes and detailed intelligence on the capacity of the Soviet Air Force, were consolidated and hidden, often in makeshift holes beneath the floorboards of foresters' cottages. When the time came, Galen and his colleagues would present themselves to the Allies, offering up their cash in return for lenient treatment. It was a deal that John R. Boker Jr. felt was good value. Convinced of the quality of German intelligence, Boker oversaw the reconstitution of the hidden files and scoured POW camps to reunite Galen with his former colleagues. 
fearful that U.S. authorities with a less sympathetic approach to Nazi officers would scupper his plans, Boker did what he could to hide his activities and protect Galen's organization. In August, Galen and a number of high-ranking colleagues were transported under Boker's watch to Washington in the private plane of a U.S. general, and from there to the Pentagon. After initially being placed in solitary confinement, within a year, having impressed U.S. intelligence, who trained him intensively, Galen was returned to Germany to head a massive U.S.-backed German spy ring to monitor Russian activities. Over the next decade, the U.S. poured an estimated $200 million into the ring, known colloquially as the Galen Org. In 1955, now staffed by thousands of undercover agents, Galen Org was formally handed over to the German government and integrated into the newly created West German intelligence agency, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the BND. Galen, the star of German intelligence, would head the BND until his retirement in 1968. For his part, John R. Boker, who would become a world-renowned stamp collector in his private life, was given belated recognition for his foresight when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame of Military Intelligence in 1990. Galen's soft landing following the war was matched by other prominent Nazis, many of whom formed a post-war nexus of contacts that frequently fed into the activities of Galen Org and the BND. In what was probably not an uncommon discovery, a BND employee was found to have been a prominent member of an SS unit responsible for the liquidation of 24,000 civilians in Russia, mostly Jews. Befitting these sordid origins, this network traded in the depraved, torture training, mercenary services, and most notably, arms dealing. Gerhard Mertens was one such character who emerged from the rubble of the war unscathed and would make hay from his contacts within the Galen group. Mertens had excelled during the war, rising to the rank of Major in the Wehrmacht. In 1944, he was awarded the Knight's Cross, one of only 7,000 German soldiers to receive the honor for acts of bravery during the unsuccessful attempts to repel the Allies' D-Day invasion. Despite appearing a happy, easygoing man, always ready to help, Mertens was also shrewd and, quote, cheated everybody, according to a close associate. Soon after the war, he took up a position at Volkswagen, a company with an impeccable Nazi pedigree. Little is known of his activities until the early 1950s, although it is almost certain that he kept curious company. According to U.S. Army intelligence documents, Mertens was the leader of the Bremen branch of the Green Devils, a group of Second World War parachutists agitating for a rearmed Germany. The branch included a number of suspected war criminals, as well as General Kurt Student, the man responsible for masterminding the German invasions of Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Closely connected to neo-Nazis of all stripes, and unrepentant about his right-wing views, Mertens was more than comfortable with the considerable neo-Nazi sentiment evident in Germany after the war. For instance, he invited Otto Ernst Remmer, founder of the Socialist Reich Party, SRP in 1950 to address members of his veterans group in Bremen. The SRP's platform was almost indistinguishable from Hitler's and included denial of the Holocaust. Mertens was, quote, considered to be an important SRP sympathizer who U.S. intelligence believed, quote, will aid the party financially. 
Merton's connections to the world of veterans and ex-Nazis was to stand him in good stead when he decided to leave the employ of Volkswagen. In September 1952, he traveled to Egypt to participate in a bizarre project that was to provide an entree to the world of arms dealing. In 1948, the Egyptian army had been humiliated in a war with the newly created State of Israel. The response of the then Egyptian ruler, King Farouk, was to hire a number of ex-military Germans to assist in training his troops, allegedly with the tacit support of both the CIA and Galen Org. When Mertens arrived in Egypt in September 1951, he became a top aide to one of the group's leaders, the former Wehrmacht general Wilhelm Farnbacher, like Mertens, a recipient of the Knight's Cross. When the young general Gamal Abdel Nasser led a coup against King Farouk in July 1952, he turned to the Germans who had been training his erstwhile enemy's forces to create his own intelligence and security network in order to consolidate power. Seamlessly shifting their allegiance from King Farouk, the German detachment set about their new task, still with the backing of the CIA and Galenorg. The training was led by Otto Scorzini, a notorious ex-Nazi who had been part of an elite unit to help Mussolini escape from Allied jails during the war. Feinstein is referring there to the 1943 Gran Sasso raid, where General Kurt Student and Otto Scorzini and a group of commandos uh, used hang glider planes to rescue Mussolini from jail. In fact, I don't think he mentions this, but Gerhard Mertens was one of the paratroopers on that mission that rescued Benito Mussolini. Scorzini himself escaped from a U.S. prison camp in 1948, possibly with a wink from U.S. intelligence services, and joined the like-minded Spanish dictator General Francisco Franco. Scorsini set himself up as an agent for various Spanish arms companies, most notably Alpha. I'm just going to stop right there and repeat that, that Scorzini set himself up as an agent for various Spanish arms companies. Remember those high-tech weapons Charles Taylor got from Spain that David Charles Miller talked about? Could be nothing. But anyways, Meritans was in contact with Otto Scorzini in 1954 to discuss a potential arms deal that Scorzini was negotiating with Nasser. While it is unlikely that Meritans was, quote, at the right hand of King Farouk, as he boasted in a rare 1968 interview, he was certainly less ideologically disposed towards Nasser, especially when the Egyptian prime minister moved towards the Soviets for support. Meritans left his Egyptian posting, but remained active in the Middle East during the mid-1950s. He trained parachute regiments in Syria and worked as a sales agent for a number of German firms throughout the region. His most notorious employer was a company run by one Herbert Quant, for whom Meritans sold Mercedes-Benz vehicles in the Middle East, most notably 500 wine-red cars to the officer corps of Saudi Arabia. Quant, who had served in the same parachute regiment as Mertens, also had impeccable Nazi credentials. His mother, Magda, had married Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda, and committed suicide in the presence of Hitler in the Führer's bunker as the war came to an end. So yes, Mertens worked for the stepson of Joseph Goebbels. As a result of his activities in the region, Mertens was considered a potentially useful intelligence asset. He was approached by U.S. Army intelligence during the mid-1950s and immediately put on the payroll. 
His job was to provide his new friends with information about the Middle East gleaned from his work as a salesman. It was the first time, but certainly not the last, that Mertens made money from his relationship with intelligence services. Mertens returned to Germany in the late 50s and attempted unsuccessfully to rejoin the German army. However, his disappointment was soon forgotten in the excitement of a lucrative offer. Reinhard Galen asked Mertens to act as the middleman for German arms sales to the Third World. Galen would assist Mertens with intelligence about potential clients and help him to arrange the necessary papers, end-user certificates, and export licenses, which are essential to any arms deal. Germany at the time was hoping to remilitarize. The thinking was that in addition to using arms to peddle influence, selling its old surplus stock would raise much-needed money for the new arms purchases. For this purpose, in 1963, Mertens established a new company, Merex, which was jointly based in Bonn and Vevey in Switzerland. He suggested that the name had been intended as a contraction of Mercedes Export, despite the fact that it was, quote, not connected with the car company. Humility might have prevented him from admitting that it could just as easily be a syncopation of Mertens Export. Now, coming up here is a name drop of another individual that we might circle back to later, who, like most of these arms dealers, has an incredibly shady and colorful background with some very interesting connections. But Feinstein goes on. The company boss, Mertens, soon forged a crucial new contact to add to his large intelligence network. In 1965, Merricks was hired as the German sales agent for Interarms, the International Armament Corporation run by the infamous Sam Cummings, who is sometimes referred to as the new Basil Zaharoff, and delighted in pointing out that his house in Monte Carlo was close to the former Zaharoff home. Cummings had served as a lieutenant with U.S. Army Secret Services during the Second World War, after which he was recruited as an undercover agent for the CIA, with responsibility to buy up surplus German weapons on the black market. He had formed Interarms in 1953, at the tender age of 26, and proceeded to make a fortune with help from the CIA. In 1954, he undertook his first major CIA-sponsored mission, to supply arms to a right-wing coup in Guatemala. Three years later, Interarms supplied weapons to the forces of Fidel Castro in Cuba, a transaction sanctioned by the CIA. It was believed that by supplying Castro with arms, the U.S. may have been able to keep the bearded revolutionary on side, a spectacular, if not uncommon, case of misplaced strategic thinking and blowback. Together, Mertens and Cummings were a formidable arms-dealing force. In 1965, they worked together to sell 74 U.S.-made F-86 fighter planes to Venezuela, 54 of which were surplus German stock, and a further 20 procured from active Luftwaffe service. It was a hugely profitable deal. The planes from surplus German stock were bought at a price of $46,400 each and sold to the Venezuelan Air Force for $141,000 per plane, netting a total profit of $6.926 million, which Cummings claimed was transferred in its entirety to Mertens. The deal was riven with corruption. The following year, Merex sealed a series of controversial deals that would almost spell an end to Mertens's nascent career as an arms dealer. Zaharoff-like, 
He sold fighter planes to both sides in South Asia, one of the world's less stable regions at the time. The first involved the sale of 90 F-86 aircraft to Pakistan, once again raised from surplus German stock. At the time, Pakistan was a no-sale zone, embargoed by NATO because of its simmering conflict with India. The required subterfuge was undertaken with the help of the Shah of Iran, who allowed the planes to be delivered to Tehran by Luftwaffe officers and then flown to Pakistan by Iranian pilots dressed up as Pakistani officers. Meriton sold the weapons to Pakistan even though Merricks had a standing order with India. In August 1965, India had placed an order with the company for 28 Seahawk MK100s and 101s, old subsonic jets that had been used by the Luftwaffe and were now considered surplus. When the India-Pakistan War erupted that year, both countries were embargoed. But in June 1966, Mertens was given the go-ahead by German authorities to sell the planes to a company in Italy. He leased a ship, the Billetal, to transport his cargo. It set sail from the tiny German port of Nordenham and once in the Mediterranean passed straight through Italian territorial waters and wound its way down the Suez Canal and landed in India. Purchased for a reported $625,000 by Merricks, the jets were sold for $875,000, raising a profit of around 5 million Deutschmarks. At precisely the same time the Billetal was carrying cargo for Merricks to India, its sister ship, the Veritol, was on its way to Pakistan, traversing much the same route in order to deliver Cobra anti-tank rockets sold to Pakistan by Merricks. The Veritol made a second delivery on the same trip, docking in Iran, where the ship disgorged its cargo of missiles, cannons, machine guns, and other materiel. An Iranian end-user certificate, signed by the country's envoy to Germany, gave the deal legitimacy. But, as with the Pakistan deal, the cargo was instead rerouted to Saudi Arabia, a country with whom Germany had severed diplomatic ties a year previously. This time the cargo was valued at 12.58 million Deutschmarks. Mertens's duplicitous adventures were leaked to the media. An intensive campaign in Swiss newspapers persuaded Mertens that he was no longer welcome in the country. The news was also met with outrage in the US, as the planes sold to Pakistan were ex-US stock given to Germany after the war. As often happens in such deals, the providing country retains the right to veto any deal to sell the weaponry on. Selling to Pakistan during a period of conflict was a violation of US and international law. Congressional hearings were held under the chairmanship of Senator Stuart Symington. Mertens was not called, but instead met Symington privately. But Sam Cummings was forced to appear before the assembled politicians, where he confirmed Symington's astonishing finding that, quote, our own intelligence services knew exactly at that time that these F-86s were meant for Pakistan. As Congress was holding hearings into the Pakistan deal, the FBI was investigating whether Merricks should be registered as an agent of the West German government. After considerable paperwork had been collected, indicating that Merricks was in constant contact with the U.S. Departments of State and Defense, Army intelligence intervened to ensure that the company was not registered as an agent, lest it lose its secrecy and anonymity. Quote, the Army has opposed registration of Merricks or Meritans as a former agent on any basis which could jeopardize their continued use. With U.S. Army intelligence in his corner, Meritans decided to establish an American branch. 
Marex Corporation was set up in a home in Bethesda, Maryland, just north of DC. In an interview granted as the hearings into his South Asian activities was taking place, Mertens indicated his closeness to the U.S. establishment by referring openly to Henry J. Cuss, the man who approved or rejected the sale of surplus weapons, gifted by the U.S., by his first name. Unfazed by possibly negative press, Mertens distributed Marek's memorial calendars, replete with stirring pictures of heavily armed soldiers entering combat, reflecting the experiences of both the, quote, new and the old Germany. The opening of the U.S. branch was the final nail in the coffin of the brief but profitable relationship between Mertens and Sam Cummings, which had begun to sour after the Pakistan deal became public. Previously, Interarms had acted as Mertens' agent in the U.S., but this was no longer necessary. They relinquished their agency commitments to each other and engaged in some less than flattering portrayals to the press. Mertens was often quoted belittling Cummings' legendary self-aggrandizement. Quote, I know him. He's Cassius Clay, the greatest. I've heard it all. He's a scrap dealer. He keeps files the way he learned as a corporal. Merricks is not on the level of scrap. Ironically, when Mertens lost his sympathetic contacts with the German establishment, Cummings was the one to take advantage, signing a joint agency deal with Mertens' replacement, a company led by a former Nazi lieutenant general, Gerhard Engel, who had served as Hitler's adjutant. Mertens installed a close friend, Gerard Bausch, as the CEO and president of the company, although Merrick's Corp remained entirely owned by the European business. Bausch, who had initially run the company from his basement, came with his own very useful connections. Much like Mertens, he had carved a useful niche for himself in the operations of German intelligence. In 1962, on Reinhard Galen's instructions, he was named station chief in Mertens' old stomping ground, Cairo. He was briefly arrested in 1965, suspected of involvement in a plot with Wolfgang Lotz, a joint German-Israeli agent, who was discovered forwarding information to Mossad from Egyptian generals unhappy with Nasser, while also sending letter bombs to German scientists who were working with the Egyptian ruler. Bausch was eventually freed after three trips to Egypt by Hans Heinrich Vorgitsky, the vice president of German intelligence. Even with Bausch's connections, Meriton's relationship with the German intelligence cooled after the Pakistan deal, for which he eventually faced criminal charges. It hardly helped that at around the same time Meriton's also completed the sale of 6 million rounds of ammunition to the Nigerian government, soon after West Germany had officially stopped supplying the country after a military takeover. Nigeria was increasingly moving towards the Soviets, who would supply arms without fuss, so Mertens was providing ammunition to a Soviet-linked state in defiance of his own government. With his German government links in a fragile state, Mertens began to pursue other avenues and continents in search of new sales. In some cases, he was held by connections to U.S. intelligence. In 1972, for example, just over a decade after leaving Egypt because of political differences, Mertens was called in by General Sadiq, a trusted lieutenant of the new Egyptian leader, Anwar Sadat. The Egyptians were frustrated by the slow pace with which Soviet supplies had been delivered. At a meeting with Mertens in Egypt, General Sadiq asked the weapons dealer to sound out U.S. officials as to whether they would be willing to step into the breach if the Soviets were expelled. Also on the table was a potential deal for bridging equipment supplied by Merricks. But it was in South America where Mertens was able to secure most of his new deals using, once again, 
his enduring Nazi connections. Now strap yourself in, because this is about to get even crazier. Feinstein writes, In Peru, Mertens appointed Comercial Agricola as Merix's local representative in the country. The company was run by Fritz Schwend, who during the Second World War had been part of Operation Bernhard, a madcap scheme to undermine the British economy by flooding the UK market with masses of counterfeit pounds. Schwend had, like many Nazis, escaped post-war justice and settled in Peru. He and Mertens were assisted by Otto Scorzani. Scorzani struck up a close relationship with Peruvian intelligence, which led to a request for M14 tanks. Mertens' South American network included other, even more extreme Nazis, such as Hans Rudel and Klaus Barbie. A fanatical right-winger, Rudel frequently traveled to Germany in the early 50s to speak at the behest of the Freikorps, of which he was, quote, patron. The Freikorps was, quote, the most flagrantly nationalistic right-wing organization in Western Germany since the Nazi party, adhering closely to the policies of the Nazi regime, even to advocating return to a dictatorship. But the most notorious of Mertens' South American cabal was Klaus Barbie, nicknamed the Butcher of Lyon and a close friend of Fritz Schwend. Barbie personally oversaw the torture and killing of 4,000 residents of occupied Lyon during the war, including a group of Jewish orphans he had ferried to concentration camps. After the war, Barbie worked for U.S. intelligence before settling in Bolivia. In fact, the U.S. aided his move to South America after French authorities had discovered his whereabouts. Barbie's depraved skills proved useful to Bolivia's military dictators. During the reign of Hugo Panzer, Barbie was hired to set up internment camps for political opponents, where torture and executions were commonplace. Usefully for Mertens, Barbie also became the dictatorship's official weapons purchasing agent. In February 1968, Schwend wrote to Mertens to inform him that Barbie's company, Transmaritima, was looking to buy used ships for the Bolivian Navy. Although it is unclear whether the deal took place, Meriton certainly intended to help. The request to speak to Barbie was forwarded to Merix's naval department. Meriton's deepest and most profitable connection in South America, however, was with Chile. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.